I don't want to exclusively talk about Turing's work on decidability there. I'd rather put it in context because it goes a long way back before Turing. And for sure, it's, it's important when we think about Turing that it's carried on to this day, and there are open questions in the subject which I would like to share with you, which you could work on during subsequent talks. Here's a kind of, it's not really the word problem, it's a word problem, it's a metaphor for a big question in decidability. I'll, I'll just introduce the subject with two problems, one of which is decidable and the other isn't, so maybe you can think to yourself, if you haven't met these before, you can, you can puzzle out which you think is decidable and which is undecidable. So this word problem, we have a little diagram like this with some coloured um, circles, A, B and C, and we'll trace around starting at the top of the yellow arrow. And so, for instance, I hope you can see that if we do A to the power 5, that just means I want to do the A arrow 5 times, so that'll take me all the way around the circle. And I'll say that's equal to 1, just as a notation meaning I've got back to the start again. So I could also go A three times, that would take me a third of the way around the circle, and then I could do B once, and that would take me back to the start as well, so I'll say that's one. And a little bit more complicated, I could do A, B, C, B, C, A to the minus two means go backwards along A, and B to the minus one, and then I get back to the start as well, so I'll say that's one. And then I ask you, what about that word at the bottom? And what's more... I'll remove the arrows. <laughs> but I've still left you the clues. But the question is, is it decidable? Can you work out whether or not this is equal to 1, given those clues? Well, not you, really, but can a computer? Is there some computer program which, given the diagram, in, specified in terms of the clues, just, and any arbitrary long word will tell you whether it's one or not. Can computers do that? Turing worked on this problem, in fact. He made a clever contribution, which is forgotten about now because the whole problem was solved subsequently, but he certainly had something to say about it. I should specify what the actual problem is, which was formulated by Max Den in 1912 coincidentally in the year of Turing's birth. So a bit more technically, but we don't need to know about the technical details because basically that diagram tells you what's going on. So we're given a sequence of letters, X, that's like A, B, C here, and then we're given a sequence of rules which are clues to what gets you back to one. And here I've got the ones that we had before, three, three rules. And then we're given a word that we're asked whether, according to the rules of the group, which is like the rules of going around the circle, whether or not that's equal to one. And so the word problem, the word problem, is, is there an algorithm, aka a computer program, which decides whether or not any given X word, that means a word written in terms of ABC, represents the identity in the group, meaning gets you back to one. It's a very nice problem, a very deep problem which originally came from topology, in fact. And so my other problem, which you have to decide whether it is decidable or not, is kind of more obviously 
topology is the unknot problem. We take a, a circle and we, like a fluffy shape, and we embed it into three-dimensional space. And we, as we do it, we tangle it up. In fact, you can think of, we, we cut a circle so it's a long piece of string. And then we tangle it around as much as we possibly want, like the lead on your mobile phone charger or something. <laughs> and then we glue the ends back together again. And the question is, so there it is, that's your mobile phone charger, I bet that's exactly what it looks like right now. <laughs> the question is, is there some way which you can pull this around without cutting it, deforming it? It's called an ambient isotopy in technical language, but it just means can we kind of twist this around in three-dimensional space and get back to the loop, which is called the unknot, for obvious reasons. So the question is, is this something that a computer can do? Is there an algorithm, a, a finite series of steps which a computer can take which will determine whether that's true or not? I'll, I'll mention a little bit more about this just to show how how related these kind of problems are to each other. The whole problem, a long time before Turing, well, not so long before Turing was working, but before Turing produced his, his, his masterpiece, the, this problem was worked on. And um, Kurt Reidemeister, working in Koenigsberg, which you might, a name you might recognize from a different part of mathematics, but um, he, he showed that the problem could be solved by that flat representation knot. You don't actually have to go into three space and play around with the knot to do it. You can do it using that two-dimensional representation with the crossings shown as they were in that diagram. And all, what's more, you can do it by just three moves, which I've written R1, R2, and R3. R1 means you untwist a single move. R2 means you un-overlap two overlapping strands, and R3 means you're allowed to move something that goes under down here to something that goes under the other side of a crossover. doesn't matter which way the crossing is. You can go either way. So, so these are moves which you can do, and any equivalence of two knot diagrams can be decided by trying these three moves. That picture I just gave you the complicated picture. Um, I got a solution to that from a famous knot series called Morwin Thistlethwaite, who also actually was at London South Bank University. But <laughs> he's in the States now. Um, maybe this is hard to read, but anyway, he sent me this cute little diagram. Which he said. In fact, I read to him and said, well, I can't see how to solve this. And he said, it's surprising how many people come to my office, some of them quite eminent, who also... <laughs> so he produced this cute little diagram, and I've gone to the trouble of annotating it with the, the Reidemeister moves that you need to do it. And so three lots of the third Reidemeister move will move, I don't know if you can see it, he's outlined it helpfully in green for me, that moves that green arrow under here. And then a Reidemeister move, but going backwards, which means you take two non-overlapping strands and overlap them. So you do that, and then do four more R3 moves to get to here. The trouble is, 
that when you overlap two strands that weren't overlapping, you've got two extra crossings. So actually the complexity goes up on the way to get to this. This has fewer crossings than before, but on the way to get there, you've increased the number of crossings. So now it looks bad again. It means that while we're trying to solve this unknot problem, we've made things look worse. Temporarily, obviously, because you get there in the end. You can see clearly the last step you take is two lots of R1, that's the untwist simple loop. If you've got this little flatty thing, you just untwist the two ends of it, and there you are, you've got that little unknot. You can see it's a word problem. It's written like that, it's just a question of whether you've got to an identity at the end. It's a very nice problem. But is it easier than the word problem or harder? All the same, indeed. Oh, I'm going backwards. Now we'll get closer to Turing because we'll talk about David Hilbert. And the Einstein's problem is a problem posed by David Hilbert. He, by the time he formally posed the Einstein's problem, he'd been thinking about this for a long time because that was in. 1928 and in 1900 he gave a famous address at the second ever International Congress of Mathematicians at which he posed 23 problems and the tenth one was in some ways the simplest because it was the only one that was a yes-no question is it or isn't it possible for an algorithmic process he didn't say that because algorithms hadn't really been invented then. But it's a finite process by which you can take an equation and say it's got solution or not. And the restriction is that this equation has to have integer coefficients. And you want integer solutions. And these are called Diophantine equations. If we go back to uh, Diophantis in Greek times. And so the question. These have been studied intensively. You perhaps know about Fermat's last theorem, which says, is it or is it not the case that you can find a solution in positive integers to x to the n plus y to the n equals z to the n? That's a diophantic equation. So Hilbert, he had the, the feeling that all these problems should be solvable, and what's more, they should be kind of mechanically solvable, formally, systematically solvable. He thought it was time for mathematicians to stop mucking around with things like Fermat's Last Theorem and just tidy the whole thing up. <laughs> yeah, I'm glad he didn't. <laughs> but he asked this question, and nowadays it's normal to restrict it for, for technical reasons. So it's, slightly, it's a slightly harder problem that we want to find trivial, non-trivial, meaning not all zeros, because they often solve things non-negative solutions. So we're not interested in negative numbers. Negative numbers are slightly easier because if you've got a negative problem and you can solve it positively, then you can solve it negatively. So here's two examples, one of which is rather complicated, but I'll come back to it later. It's got three variables. Can you find a k and an n and an f? Not all of them zero, but all of them not negative, which makes this complicated and zero. And you can. 
Here's a more interesting one for the immediate talk, which is this thing called the Pell equation, which says, can you solve that for x and k and y? And it's interesting because if you fix k, then you get an equation you can solve in x and y if k is not a square number. So if you put k equals to 1, you get a solution, uh, an equation you can't solve. And if you put k equals to 4, you get an equation you can't solve. If you put k equals to 2 or 3 or 5 or 6, then you get an equation that you can solve with non-negative numbers. You can try it. If you've got time to write that down quickly, you can, you can try and see what a solution is for, say, if I make k equals to 5. This is called, it's called a parameterized Diophantine equation because what we're interested in now really is not the whole equation. We're not really interested in the x and y that solve it. We're interested in that it tells us something about k. That equation specifies a whole set of numbers. It, sets, it specifies exactly the numbers that are not square numbers. So, that's very nice. It means that we can say, here's a list, a, a set that we can list the numbers of. We can go through all the numbers and we can see which are square. We can just count them off. So one is a square, two isn't, three isn't, four is, five, six, and seven, and eight aren't, but nine is. So we can go through all the numbers. We call this a listable set or an, or a, an enumerable set. And so this is an enumerable set which we can specify in a very simple way, just by writing down that equation. So the set is the k's that make it solvable. Okay, we'll come back to that. That's another problem. That problem, can you find a way of solving all diophantic equations? That definitely is undecidable. I'll tell you that right now. But you can solve the little pedigree. I mean, individually, as, as human beings, we're very good at solving these things, but there's no systematic, finite process for solving these equations. So, Hilbert still thought there was by 1928. And he thought it so strongly that he thought that any mathematical problems that could be systematically written down could be systematically solved. And this became known as the Hilbert program, and it was born perhaps in 1900. And it died suddenly in 1931, much to Hilbert's dismay. By that time, he had decided that if you wrote down a mathematical system, like the formal rules of number theory or the formal rules of set theory or something, if you wrote down the rules, then the following had to be true. He really felt they had to be true. For mathematics to mean anything, he felt it had to be true. The system should be complete, which means that if I take a statement about the numbers, say, then either that statement's true or the reverse of it is true, I guess you have to accept that one or the other is true in initial uh, real die-hard constructivists. You, you believe either P or not P. Well, completeness means that one of those two has got to be provable within your system. You've got to be able to derive it from the action. And also, you don't want to be able to derive both of them, because that would be a bit disconcerting if you spent a lot of time getting a proof that P was true and then at the same time somebody else had come along and said you could prove that P was not true. That would be a waste of time. So he wants the system to be consistent 
And then he added this thing, decidability, which I, I guess he added in the 20s because he thought the time was right to actually settle this thing. And not only do you want to know that something's provable, but you, you want to be able to prove that it's provable. You want to be able to decide. You want some systematic process which will take a P and say, yes, this can be derived from the X. Completeness and consistency is the same as saying that the truth of a statement is the same as saying the statement is provable, which is what you want. That's what people think. If you ask somebody in the street about mathematics and they don't run away, then they will give you their opinion that mathematics is the queen of the sciences because what it says is true is what is provable. That Gödel showed that that was not the case, as you probably know. First and second incompleteness theorem till that same day. He had a completeness theorem actually as well, slightly before that, which said they are synonymous if you allow for things that are true in any interpretation of the system of rules. But that's another story. Completeness implies decidability. Turing said this in his famous 1936 paper, which we're about to get on to now. If you, if you, Hilbert didn't seem to realise this, and his followers didn't seem to realise it. But if you've got, if it's true that either P or not P is provable, well, we go back to this idea of listing things, like the listing of the sets for the Diophantic equation. We can go through all the numbers and say whether they're square or not square. We can also list all the proofs of length 1, and all the proofs of length 2, and all the proofs of length 3, and all the proofs of length 4. And if we do that, and we've got a particular P in mind, then sooner or later, either P or not P will appear at the end of a proof. We might have to wait a million years, but in theory, for sooner or later, in a finite amount of time, either a proof will turn up that says P, or a proof will turn up that says not P. And as long as we believe in consistency, which we don't, but he did, then, then that is a decision process. That's what decidability means. Is there a finite, systematic way, no matter how inefficient, of going through things and getting an answer? I think it's interesting that Turing spotted this. It's because he was thinking very much in terms of machines. Sue has very helpfully shown this Turing machine. Um, and Turing had very, a very kind of mechanical approach to mathematics. He, he, he was, in some sense, the first computer scientist because of that. He didn't see it as an abstract theory. He wanted to see a concrete thing. And so he was thinking about things like, let's think about step by step listing all these things. I, I'll reverse back again to even before 1900. Um, this is a famous um, proof that Turing used in his 1936 paper, which was well known and well accepted, and particularly accepted by Hilbert, in fact, which is that you can't do this listing process counting through all the infinite theory one sequences. You can count systematically all the proofs in a formal mathematical system. You can count systematically all the non-square numbers, but you can't systematically count through all infinite zero one sequences 
because of this diagonalization trick, which has to be the, the shortest, simplest, and at the same time profoundest thing in mathematics, I think. Because it's very deep and was controversial in the 1890s when it was first produced. So we suppose that we list all the 0 1 sequences. There they are S1, S2, S3, S4, S5, and so on. And then we look at the diagonal when we set them all out like that, infinitely to the right and infinitely down. And we look at each diagonal and we reverse it. So 0 becomes 1 and 1 becomes 0. And then we've got a new sequence, the blue sequence down there. And that can't be any of the sequences that we listed. Because if it was the i-th sequence, then we know that the i-th digit of the i-th sequence was switched to get this. So it just can't be in our list. So it seems like a cheat. But actually, that's not the only proof. Cantor proved it in a different way first. There's an interesting history when this idea of diagonalization first appeared. Probably in the 1870s. Well, Turing assumed this was the case. And then he did this very, very kind of mechanical approach to talking about what it meant to have a finite process of steps to decide something, which hadn't been talked about before, before the 1930s. Hilbert wasn't very interested in the definition because he assumed that whatever it meant would become clear when somebody produced it. And he was pretty sure that somebody was going to produce something for solving diophantine equations. And he said, well, when we see it, then that's what a process is. We're not going to quibble about it. So it was felt to Turing and Alonzo Church in the States and Emil Post at the same time, and Gödel as well. It felt to them to think about what it meant to, to rationalize, to think rationally, to, to compute and to produce this Turing machine, which you don't really have to think more than what Sue already showed you. It's this long tape with a thing going backwards and forwards and kind of scanning things and deciding what to do next. The things that are particularly relevant to us is what Turing called a circle-free machine. The machine prints things. It has a, an unlimited tape. And if it uses an unlimited amount of that tape and goes on printing zeros and ones, forever, and then you call it circle free, which is a slightly strange name, but anyway, that's what you call it. He was also interested in the fact that if you had a machine, you could write down the rules of the machine, and then you could write down the rules kind of numerically, and in the end, you could just say the machine is specified by a big long number, some kind of encoding, like a computer program, really. And he called that a description number, and he said a satisfactory number, which was, which was a number, an integer which is the description, when you decode it, of one of these things, which is circle-free, which prints zeros and ones forever. <coughs> and then he said, I want to talk about computable sequences. <coughs> he limited himself to circle-free machines, because he was only interested in machines that went on working forever. And so computable sequences are infinite zero-one sequences. and they're, they can be enumerated. They're enumerated by enumerating satisfactory numbers, and since we're just walking through the numbers, we can stop at each number and decide whether it's satisfactory or not, or can we? 
and an uncomputable sequence is one which is the output of no machine. Lots of zero one sequences are the output of some machine working away, but some are not. We know that by diagonalization. He knew that because of Cantor does. So that's all kind of technical stuff. Um, Jack Copeland has, has written this uh, big fat book called The Essential Turing, and it's got a wonderful gloss of Turing's 1936 paper, and you don't really have to look further than that to get all this material very nicely explained. Although recently somebody's written a whole book going through the paper, if you want to get even more detail. So that's one essential ingredient of the first And the other essential ingredient is the idea that it was a universal Turing machine. He didn't call it Turing machines, computer machine. This was his universal computer machine. By the way, I put this picture here to remind me. It's a kind of essential breakthrough of Turing that he he realizes that machines don't really have to separate their data from their instructions. So up till then, people have been so used to having ingenious counting devices, mechanical devices, where you put your data in and then you turn the handle and it gave up the answer. But Turing realized that there's no real distinction. And on this Turing machine, you can put whatever you want on this tape. And so in particular, you can have a machine where on the tape, you can put a string of zeros and ones, which encodes a description number which is a machine, and so you put into your Turing machine a description machine. And he cooked up this amazing machine, which had a set of hardwired rules, these rules that the yellow reading head uses, a set of hardwired rules which, given any description number, would imitate the machine that was being described by that number. So we don't have to think about this very hard because it just means a computer. This is a laptop. And you put a word processing program on it or a, a web browsing program on it. And your laptop has hardwired rules that tells you how to turn itself temporarily into a web browser or temporarily into a word processor or temporarily into a spreadsheet. And nowadays, this is kind of, well, maybe not me, younger generation think, don't think anything about it. They say, yeah, of course. It's a big thing then, and it's essential. This question of satisfaction, can we actually look at the number and decide if it's satisfactory or not? All the machines are described by single numbers. It turns out to be harder to decide if a number is a description of a cycle-free, infinitely printing zeros and ones machines than it is to decide if a number is not a square. You see, we claimed by diagonalization that not all zero one sequences could be computed. But then what's wrong with this machine, which looks like a description of an adaptation of this universal Turing machine? And it's going to calculate exactly those blue zeros and ones that gave us that sequence S that was non-computable. But then we're computing it. So what's going on? The machine does this. It just goes through all the description numbers, okay, and 
for each one it decides if it's satisfactory or not because it's only interested in infinitely long ones and if it is satisfactory then it will simulate the machine that's described by that number until it gets to the case bit and then it will reverse that bit because that's the blue bit and it will output it and if it does that for all the machines then it will have produced all the blue bits on that diagonal but the trouble is what is the problem? what happens when the machine gets to the number which describes itself it's going to go through all the machines simulating them and producing the bits until it gets to the number which I've called KH when it gets to KH it's going to say ah oh, right here's another machine I'll simulate it and it starts simulating and how does it simulate it? well it simulates it by doing what it does which is go through all the machines simulating them until it gets to the machine number K sub H and then it says ah oh, what's K sub H? ah I know what to do I'll simulate all the machines <laughs> until I get to K sub H and so it goes into an infinite regress but everything there that's written down is Turing has demonstrated that they're all implementable he's got this universal machine he's proved that it works the only thing that he hasn't proved which I glossed over as I went through it on the previous slide was this thing about is K satisfactory nothing about that loop doesn't work except testing if something is satisfactory or not. So you sneak this idea in that you can't decide whether a number is satisfactory or not. And so the satisfactoriness problem is unsolvable. By sleight of hand. What about the enchidence problem? That's not the same thing quite. Because that's saying I've got a formal mathematical system, I'm giving you a statement that says, um, it's, a, it's a theorem basically and it's saying is this theorem true or not well, so Turing went on to solve this by well this is another second ingredient paper actually this process of reduction so he's got the satisfactoriness problem and that can't be solved because it made our our potential program go into the loop and then he converts this in a clever way so that any satisfactoriness problem is turned into something called the printing problem and the printing problem is a different problem it says given a, a Turing machine does it ever print zero on its tape but of course you can watch it and see whether it prints zero but it might take a long time so in the end you get bored and go away when you come back it still hasn't printed zero but you don't know that it won't sooner or later so that's a difficult problem to decide and he shows that if you could solve this problem then you could solve the satisfactoriness problem because I'll take my satisfactoriness question and I'll convert it into a different Turing machine which prints zero exactly if the first machine was circle free and so that means the printing problem can't be solved and this is a, a fundamental idea in computer science this idea of reduction of a problem that you already know you can't solve by transforming it into one that you want to know you can't solve and if you could solve it then you could solve the original one so you can't so that solved that too <laughs> it's not a joke 
It sounds a bit glib, doesn't it? But it's, it's bread and butter for a lot of people. And this is how questions like the, the solvability of Diophantine equations, this, they're all, there's a long sequence that starts with set factor or some other kind of prototype of solvable. There's a long sequence of arrows and converters, sometimes very complicated and ingenious, which eventually takes you to the problem that you want to show them. Well, that doesn't solve the Enchidian's problem either, because we're still just talking about uh, decidability of problems and not theorems. But then he did another clever thing. He said, uh, I've got a machine, M, and I want to know if it's satisfactory or not. That is, does it print forever? And I've got a different converter, which will turn it into a theorem. And this theorem is provable in the system, the formal system, if and only if the original machine was satisfactory. So he does this by going by the printing problem, in fact. So in the end, he has the, the, the theorem is provable if and only if the machine prints zero. And we know that we can't decide whether a machine prints zero or not. So there's no machine for deciding if this derived constructed theorem is provable or not. And that killed the Entscheidung's problem, which was killed simultaneously by Alonso Church using something called the lambda calculus. But Gödel famously didn't really buy into the lambda calculus proof. He thought it was, you know, he laughed, my you. <laughs> but he was convinced by Alan Turing's machines because they were so concrete and because he really felt philosophically that they were capturing in some way the essence of what it does to think rationally. Let me just finish by answering the two questions I asked at the beginning and revisiting the Diophantine equation. I'm not going to go into too much detail, but the word problem, that's the thing that I started with, the, you know, a pentagon with the arrow going around it. Can you decide, given, well, here's a simpler example, two letters, a single rule that tells you that's what gets you back to one. Can you decide whether or not a big long word gets you back to one or not. And it's undecided. And that was proved by Novikov in 54. As I say, Turing proved a version of it a good deal before that called the word problem for um, some kind of semi-groups. You see, I can't even remember because it's not very important. Because the whole problem was solved by Novikov. Anyway. Dimension an unsolved problem, but it actually for this one, if you've got one single rule, one clue, then you can solve it. So that's quite amazing. That's the result of something called Man Magnus's Freedom Theorem gives you that. It's a nice name for theorem, isn't it? So the Freedom Theorem tells you that so-called one-relator groups, you can solve the word problem. But, and you kind of think, well, You've only got one rule, so you know how, how much can you do with that? But actually, a different problem, if I give you two specifications with one relator and ask if they're actually the same system, like is that the same original um, pentagon diagram that I've derived you from, that's unsolved, actually. We don't know yet. 
it's an open question, a big open question, to decide whether you can test two groups. These two are the same, actually. These two groups in the case where I take n equals to 1 and n equals to minus 1. These two groups are the same. But how do you know that? Well, being a human being, you work it out cleverly, but that's the question, you see. Computers are not human beings, we think. The knot problem, can we settle whether a knot is untwistable to the unknot? Yes, this was decided by Wolfgang Harkin in 61. One half, by the way, of the famous Appellan-Harkin four-color theorem duo. He was the bought-in topologist to help solve the four-color theorem which he did in 76. Robin Wilson has a famous book if you want to read about that. Anyway, he was a, he was a top shot topologist and he produced this algorithm for systematically deciding whether your tangled up mobile phone cable can be untwisted without cutting it with scissors, which is not recommended. The algorithm coincidentally is hundreds of pages long and has never been implemented. So it's a kind of separate question whether having a decision process you can really do anything with it. Some parts of it have been have been coded up by not theorists. But to this day, since ever since sixty one, you still can't go to Google and search for a program which will decide whether or not is the unknown. But you can find Harkin's original hundred and something page paper. Um, I'd like to mention an open problem here as well, just because it's kind of cute. You, the, the knot problem was the circle, the one-dimensional sphere, it's called. So it's, it's one-dimensional because it's just a line, but it's a sphere because it's around the circle. So if we embed the one-dimensional sphere in three dimensions, then that gives us a knot, and we can ask whether we can unknot or not. If we take a two-sphere, that's what you normally think of as a sphere, a two-dimensional spherical surface. What if we embed that also in two dimensions up? That's four space, so now we can't imagine what's going on because how can you think about twisting uh, a basketball around in four dimensions? Well, I can't. Um, but there's a picture of the Klein bottle, which you, you know perhaps this is a, a two-dimensional surface which is embedded in four-dimensional space so that where it intersects with itself and makes this kind of bottle shape, really it doesn't at all. That's a Three, uh, it's a, a two-dimensional image of a three-dimensional con <laughs> pretending to be what happened in four dimensions. The famous original knot diagram was a two-dimensional picture of what happened in three dimensions, but you, that's not a con because we can do that crossing thing where we, we make a little gap in the line show it crossing over. We can't do that. Thing. This is in four dimensions, believe it or not. It's undecided whether or not you can test unknottedness in four dimensions. So if you've got a, a spherical mobile phone cable and you've left it carelessly lying around in four-dimensional space, <laughs> I can't tell you whether or not you can unknot it or not. And if we go too high up from the three-sphere, the three-sphere is something that lives in four-dimensions, so we can't even imagine it. The three-sphere is what famously is the subject of the recently solved Poincaré conjecture. If we take a three-sphere, at least we know what one is now, thanks to the work of Gregory Perlman. We take three sphere and embed it in five space, then it's undecidable whether we can or not. 
Right, just to finish up by going back to Hilbert's tenth problem. That's going to leave you no time for questions. You can ask. So Hilbert's tenth problem was, is there a way of solving diophantic equations with an algorithm? So once Turing had done his work, this became a question of reducing the problem to the satisfactoriness problem or the printing problem, doing this clever conversion process. But that took another 30 years, 35 years, and it took a very long series of very imaginative insights by, well, the three names in particular are Martin Davis, Hilary Putnam, and Julia Robinson. And then along came at the end Yuri Maciasevich, who did something clever with the Fibonacci numbers and solved the whole thing. I think I put that on the next slide. The Fibonacci numbers, you know, this sequence 0, 1, 1, 2, where each number is the sum of the two previous ones. By the way, here's a cute Diophantine equation which enumerates the Fibonacci numbers. So this k, like the k we had in the Pell equation, it's a Fibonacci number if and only if this thing has a non-trivial positive solution. So put your next size there if you've already solved the Pell equation once. If you want the Fibonacci number 3, the 0, 1, 2, 3 Fibonacci number, what x do you have to choose to solve that? It's just a quadratic equation actually, but you see the square there leaves it open whether what you've got in the bracket is plus or minus 1. You can ask me for it later. Here's the here's the theorem: Davis, Putnam, Robinson, and Maxwell. It's called the DPRM theorem, and it says that well, it was originally a conjecture of Martin Davis, who actually is speaking at Manchester this, this week. Um, his conjecture was that the sets that you can specify with these clever equations is the same as the sets that you can list by going through all the numbers one by one and checking, and it's true. And since you can't go through all the numbers one by one and check for everything, because we can't do that for proofs, we can list all the proofs, but we can't always find all the proofs that way, that, that settles the conjecture. There's two consequences which I shall end with. One is a consequence that there's a universal Diophantine equation with a category K in it, where if you want a particular Diophantine equation like the Fibonacci one, you can give a particular number to the capital K and then it mimics, it simulates. This is an idea that wouldn't have been thought of without Turing, I think. This idea of universality, it's a, it's a big deal. It's amazing, this consequence. And it meant that for many years, number theorists refused to believe Davis's conjecture because they said, how can it be that I can ask about the solution of a Diophantine equation with a million variables, some of them raised to the power of a million, and yet you tell me there's, it's got it down to nine now. You can find a Diophantine equation with nine variables, which will simulate a Diophantine equation that's got a million variables and a thing that's raised to the power of a million. People didn't believe it. And another thing is that because Diophantine equations enumerate things, if Davis's conjecture is true, you can produce a Diophantine equation which will enumerate anything. So it will enumerate, for instance, counterexamples to famous open problems like Fermat's last theorem. Well, we know that there's none, but anyway. 
here's the number theorists thought that can't be true either. We have been wasting our time working on these problems just for you to tell us that there's a polynomial that does it, but it's true. And here's a, a nice polynomial which exactly, it does the same as that Fibonacci one, but it enumerates the prime numbers. This equation here was the first diophantic equation I put up, the first example I put up. And you, you might remember that solutions were very complicated. As soon as you ask for k equals 1, which gives you 3, so you want to produce the prime number 3, the solutions are already 3 or 4 digits long just for those two variables. So I think nobody to this day has actually produced a single prime number out of this thing. <laughs> I asked my friend, my friend Tony Forbes, who run, you might, he runs this magazine called the M500 for the Open University, which is very nice and full of little unsolved problems. He said he ran this as a competition in M500, and nobody came up with a solution. Tony Forbes is a real hotshot at mathematical computing, and he couldn't come up with a solution. So that's a real challenge to find any positive solution number solution to that, which will give you any prime number, even two. Forget about 199. I've overrun slightly, so I'll stop. Thanks very much.